And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are in this rotating globe. Welcome to another <clears throat> intriguingly bizarre edition of The Other Side of Midnight. That magical time between dusk and dawn when literally anything can happen and your clocks freeze. Anyway, actually speaking of freezing, here it's uh, in the upper 20s in the Land of Enchantment. And this studio is not very warm. So if you hear kind of strange noises in the background, those are probably the fans of the heaters that will keep us warm for the next three hours as we take a journey into something really puzzling, perplexing, and equally fascinating, which is what the heck is going on between Russia and Ukraine? And we have the best person I can think of uh, with us tonight to answer this question from the wilds of Idaho, uh, historian and uh, University of Idaho um, uh, alum, uh, Dr. Richard Spence. And so we're going to spend the next uh, three hours, give or take, delving into the background, the really uh, arcane but fascinating background to what's currently going on. And I know there are a number of perceptions as to what is going on. So uh, we will get to that momentarily. At the, at the initial part of the show, for those of you who are new to The Other Side of Midnight, and I know we have a lot of new listeners, I can tell by the numbers, uh, let me take you through what we nor normally do here. Um, if you're listening on something that is not a computer, what you want to do is to uh, find our URL, the other side of midnight.com. Click on that. You will then see tonight's banner. Why is Putin threatening Ukraine for Sunday, January 30th, 2022? Click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page of something we call Radio with Pictures. Um, I really abhor videos. That's why I will never permit a live television camera here in the studio. I mean, many years ago, Art said, why don't you put it in a camera? He'd just gotten his camera. And I said, are you kidding? Because, anyway, radio is about sound, the audio, the background, the, the word pictures. Now, what we've added to that classic idea of radio is something we call radio with pictures, which I freely admit I stole from a uh, telev uh, television a film development company that we actually almost did a movie with, RKO. Um, Radio with Pictures, I borrowed freely from their uh, uh, logo and moniker. And so we have a section called Radio with Pictures. If you, once you're on the um, guest page, right under the banner on the guest page at the top, you'll see a little bunch of print that says guest page, fast links to items. And tonight it's uh, me, Richard, and uh, Dr. Spence. So click on my name, that will take you to Radio with Pictures, and there are a couple of free news items I wanna go over quickly before we bring in uh, Dr. Spence. Item number one. Now we've been doing this for the last, oh, month or so, since Christmas, when the Webb Space Telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope, was successfully launched from French Guiana in South America at the crack of dawn on Christmas morning, and everything worked, at least in terms of the launch. In fact, the Ariane 5 was so precise that it saved the Webb telescope itself enough onboard mid-correction fuel that the life of the telescope, barring any unforeseen electronic problems, is now judged to be on the order of 20 years. And that's without refueling. And of course, that's without Elon Musk. Because you know at some point, um, if there are problems, that Musk will mount a mission with the Starship to basically go out a million miles away from Earth at the so-called L2 point, which is a million miles behind the Earth, away from the Sun, where Webb will be gently orbiting in a very large halo orbit, bigger than the moon's orbit around the Earth in a period of about a month. I keep meaning to look up the precise time 
and I keep forgetting. So what does all this have to do with item number one? This is a direct link to the web blog from NASA, and it updates, uh, it used to update every day and sometimes a couple times a day as they were going through the very, 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 very complicated deployment process. I mean, this thing was a Rule Goldberg gadget just waiting to fail. And as you will see when you read the uh, 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 post from the head of the web team, in fact, uh, technically it is the um, um, web project manager, Bill Oakes, he has some very interesting thoughts about the incredibly, in fact, unbelievably, brilliantly, astoundingly, miraculously, can I put a few more Lees in there? Deployment of the whole damn thing. Nothing failed. Everything is working, except now they have to align the 18 separate sub-mirrors into the one large super primary mirror of the telescope itself, the so-called primary mirror, which is almost 22 feet in diameter. Can you imagine a parabolic sheet of glass 22 feet? That's bigger than my living room. Anyway, um, that's going to go on for the next two or three months, aligning each of the separate mirrors, focusing them precisely <clears throat> to literally nanometer precision. They've tested all the motors, all the actuators, everything is working in the ultra-cold conditions on the night side of the tennis court-sized sun shield they deployed a couple weeks ago. And we're just waiting for all that alignment to be completed like about uh, late, late spring. Um, and then we will get the first of what should be absolutely stunning images. So if you want to kind of follow along with what Webb is doing and how it's going to basically revolutionize again, like Hubble did, our understanding of this extraordinary universe that we inhabit here in 3D. Um, go to that, the James Webb Space Telescope blog, and you will read tonight, the web team looks back on a successful series of astonishing deployments. Item number two right under that is a kind of a basic uh, where is web, including a new feature that NASA has, has uh, added, which is a three-dimensional simulation of the solar system, the Earth-Moon system, and Hubbs halo orbit around the L2 position. And I saw a, a kind of a quirky uh, news item the other day saying uh, something like, how can Webb orbit nothing? Because, of course, there's nothing really at the L2 point. It's a balance of forces. And this article went into great detail, as does the web team, about how you basically orbit in space nothing. Only works if you're in a two-body system with five so-called Lagrange points figured out centuries ago by a French mathematician named Lagrange. Item number three. I mean, this is the subject of tonight. This is a recent story from the Washington Post. This is kind of an overview of the current Russian-Ukrainian uh, standoff with uh, Putin massing something like 130,000 troops at last count and countless numbers of tanks and artillery and everything else you need for a major land war, which has got a lot of people very, very upset and apprehensive and downright fearful. Then there's the other side, which says this is all a big uh, ado about nothing. Well, the way to cut through the morass, because, of course, these days, you know, you don't just have two sides. You have 15 sides to every story. And even if people agree on the same basic facts, they come to totally different conclusions, um, which, of course, is why I included item number four, because this is a <clears throat> recent news story uh, last uh, day or two from the New York Post to kind of balance politically the Washington Post. And there you will see some really interesting satellite images uh, of this extraordinary buildup of military power and hardware and might on the border of Ukraine. Now, some people are quibbling and saying, well, 20 miles isn't exactly on the border. 
heck, I can go 20 miles in 20 minutes. Um, so with this kind of deployment, which in the good old days, we would not have known about. I mean, this is all now kind of open and transparent to the world because of the uh, you know, existence of satellite reconnaissance technology. Remember, well, most of you probably don't remember, but way, 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 way back when I was a kid growing up, then President Eisenhower in the 1950s, in the late 50s, uh, proposed something to then uh, Russian um, Premier uh, Khrushchev, which was something called an open skies policy, because the Kennedy administration a couple years later came into existence claiming there was a huge missile gap between uh, the United States and the Soviet Union, with the Soviet Union clearly the winner, so we had to catch up. And that was one of the planks of his platform, the Democratic Party platform, which led to his uh, ultimately successfully winning the presidency, the idea that we were behind the Russians in military hardware, specifically long-range rockets. Um, that is an example of how an entire presidential election turned on ignorance. Because it turned out after the election, when um, things like Project Corona, which was the first spy satellite built by the Air Force and the CIA and the RAND Corporation, went into orbit and took photographs of the Soviet Union that um, the Russians were not happy with, uh, it turned out there was no missile gap. In fact, the Russians were behind us in the deployment of intercontinental ballistic missiles. So what has happened in the last 50, 60 years is that we've had this spy in the sky on all sides, able to look down at any piece of real estate on Earth within minutes and now relay in real time stunning high-resolution imagery from hundreds of miles up to where literally they can read the license plates if someone holds a license plate, you know, facing straight up. And with that kind of extraordinary technology, that transparency, it's very obvious on all the satellite imagery, not only from national um, satellite systems, like, uh, you know, the National Reconnaissance Office in the United States, but from private enterprise, from private corporations, which now have satellites which are infinitely better than the original Project Corona spacecraft back in the uh, uh, late 50s, early 60s. Um, these systems are all reporting the same thing, that there is this extraordinary deployment of military personnel and hardware and trucks and things including, you know, supplies of blood for transfusions if and when a bloody invasion of Ukraine takes place. So there can be no dispute of the reality of the deployment by Putin of all this hardware. The question is, what is he planning to do with it? And that is going to be the focus of our discussion tonight. The background to this contretemp between Russia and Ukraine with someone who I could not think of a better person to reach out, which I did, and ask, which I did. And so tonight we're going to be taking a tour de force journey back in time through the beginnings of this uh, standoff between this very large nation, 145 million people, and a very large military, and a relatively tiny nation on its border with something like 45 million Ukrainians and with almost no military. And we're going to find out why is everybody up in arms, literally, about the potential for the biggest land invasion of another country uh, in Europe since World War II. And with that, let me go directly to uh, uh, my guest background. You've heard him on the show many, many times. I kind of joke sometimes that he is our resident historian, because I guess he is. Uh, Dr. Spence is a professor of history at the University of Idaho. Um, his interests include Russian and military history, along with espionage, occultism, and anti-Semitism. His major published works are Legion. You can read them there on the website. And so without further ado, um, let me open up the channel and welcome 
Rick Spence back to the microphones here at the other side of midnight. So enlighten us. How far back in time does this bizarre confrontation extend? Well, first, good evening to you, Richard, and to, and to everybody else who's out there. So how far back does it go? I mean, if we don't want to take it back to protoplasmic slime. Um, <laughs> well. Uh, Is that one of your subtitles, History of Protoplasmic Slime? Well, I, I would always joke with it. I, I have to point out here that I am I am a professor emeritus at the ah, University of Iowa, ah. which means I retired. Yeah, but you so know, like I, in the CIA, they say retired CIA. They're never retired. And you're not a retired yeah, I re historian. I'm, I'm retired. Yeah, I'm not a retired historian, but I am a retired professor of history. But okay. That's, okay. That's a matter of semantics, uh, which means I don't work for them anymore, and they don't pay me. So there we go. Ah, okay. Um, so how far do we want to take this back? Well, let's go back. If you look at my map, I, I sent over, you know, you're asking for things, and I sent a bunch of maps. I could have gone crazy and sent more maps, but I, I tried to keep them down because there's an infinite number of maps, and I love maps. Uh, me too, me so too. You, okay, hang on, hang on. Let me tell the new folks right. how to find them. Go to the other okay. side of midnight.com, click on the banner that takes you to the guest page. Under that banner, you will see fast links to items Richard and Spence. It's a very interesting way to put that. Click on Spence. That will take you to Rick's section, Dr. Spence's section. And item number one, it says Kivan, Russia. A very nice map. You yeah. click on it, it gets very big. So we can see great detail. Okay. So we'll start with this map, because this, this takes us back as far as we need to go towards the direction of protoplasmic slime. And it <laughs> takes us back to when a Russia didn't exist. There was, at this point, no real city of Moscow, and in which Kiev, which is today the capital of a country which is called Ukraine, which will explain what that means and why it's not the Ukraine, but in which Kiev was the nominal capital of something which, as this map says, was called Kievan Rus. Not Russia, not Russia, just Kievan Rus. And this map dates to around, you know, it's about the year 1000. So... What is Kievan Rus, and how did both modern Russia and modern Ukraine come out of that? And what you had, you can notice on the map here, there are different colored areas, sort of blobs, and most of these show different major principalities. So one thing to keep, keep in mind is that Kievan Rus wasn't really a kingdom, and it wasn't really an empire. It was more a kind of business concern more than anything else, but there, at various times, strong leaders emerged, and they were able to impose their control over this whole area, and which, again, only encompasses a small part of, really, it doesn't even encompass most of what is Ukraine today, and only a very small part of what is Russia, but this is where the whole thing comes from. This is the egg that everything else comes from. So... What had happened a little earlier in this is that you'd had in this region, it was inhabited by a variety of warring Slavic tribes. Now, Slavs are, you know, today Slavs encompass everything from Russians and Ukrainians. They are Slavs. They are Eastern Slavs. And then so are Poles and Slovaks and Czechs and Serbs and Croats, etc. They come in different varieties, but they all speak related languages. In the same sense that, let's say, Germans, Norwegians, Swedes, and Danes speak related Germanic or Nordic languages, or even, even the English do in that case. It doesn't mean that the same people, but it means they have a certain relationship to each other. So this large area had been, for, you know, for untold centuries prior to that, had been inhabited by you know, pretty much a sort of standard warring tribes. And what had happened about 200 years before this map, around 800 A.D., is that the area began to coalesce. That is, you know, it's one of the things to do is that a lot of disparate things begin to coalesce into something a bit more solid. And the real center of that, if you, if you look at the map, if you look towards the north of this kind of pinkish area, you'll see a town called Novgorod. That just means new town which, I mean, it was a new town at one point. Mm -hmm. And then if you go further down, 
down, you notice every, well, this area is sort of surrounded with a red line, and if you follow it down, especially along this large river, you'll see that towards the south, a long way to the south, is the city of Kiev. So those were the two most important cities in that area, and, and what happened is that around 800, 850, a, a fellow came along uh, by the name of Rurik. A, and Rurik, interestingly enough, was not from this area at all. Rurik was a Viking. Oh, sweet. He came from, he came from well, probably from Sweden, as much as anyone can tell. And Rurik showed up because among these wars between the local tribes, one of the things that outsiders, you know, outside powers, let's say, or interests were coming in to try to leverage things in their direction. So being a Viking, Rurik and some of his friends saw advantages here and basically applied their military trade to help one tribe against another. And eventually Rurik sort of comes out on top of this. Rurik becomes, again, not a king, not an emperor, but he becomes, uh, maybe the best way to describe it, he becomes the biggest drug dealer, if you imagine that. He becomes the Pablo Escobar of this region. Oh, he's, he, he's a warlord. He's a warlord. He makes himself the toughest warlord. Okay, let me, ask, let me ask one of yeah. my classic dumb questions. This is 1,200 years ago. We can't mm-hmm. believe a New York Times story from three days ago. How do we know any of this is true well you don't (laughs) you simply go by remember long before anything was written down everything was transmitted by word to mouth which is a very imperfect way of doing it or in 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 in, in song and chronicle and bards and that but you know i mean well you can sing it which is just you know saying it in with with a melody attached to it but it comes down to there, there are records that record, but there are interesting questions about it. So, for instance, while it seems to be generally agreed that Rurik was a Viking, that he was a Norse adventurer who came into this area, that is, he wasn't a local, exactly where he came from isn't clear at all. Hmm. So, the other thing that isn't clear is this term Rus, because no one can agree what that actually refers to. So, well, after isn't it, isn't it, comes along, isn't it kind of related to red? The, uh, the actual, no, and, it, and it's not, and, the, and none of these tribes are called the Rus. They're they're not called that. Oh, and so one of the reasons why people think that Rurik was from what is now Sweden is that there was an area in early medieval Sweden that was referred to as Rus. So one idea is that he and the actual Rus, not the locals, but then somehow this term stuck and then began to apply to other people. So the people who sort of first talk about encountering the Rus are the Byzantines, which are much further south. So again, I think, let's see how far down this map goes. Well, this map only goes down, you can see the Black Sea. But if you basically sail down the river, if you were an enterprising Viking and uh, with your, your warriors, and you got to the mouth of the Dnieper River, and your ships were there, and you went across the Black Sea, not too far was the great Byzantine capital, the Eastern Rome, Constantinople, one of the richest cities in the world at that time. And you know, being Vikings, you're just not going to be able to resist the possibility of sacking the richest city in the world. <laughs> of course not. So as, mm. as soon as this area... We're saying nice things. Region, you understand we're saying nice things about my... Well, you know, they did what they did. They were enterprising. Okay, that's that's how you know. And, 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 I love that. enterprise. Okay, go ahead. Okay, they always observe... You remember the most important thing to remember in this type of thing is always loot before you burn. Absolutely. So... Mm. Um, so... Rurik first established himself as a kind of warlord in Novgorod, and then he and his descendants, he married in to the locals, he established a kind of dynasty, and he and his descendants, or his descendants, would eventually become nominally the kind of rulers of this loose-knit, always kind of fragile coalition, but the way in which you often held people together was in directing their energies against some other enemy. And... 
that and the richest prize was Constantinople. So it's the Byzantines who wake up one morning and find out that there's a whole bunch of guys in boats who've come across the Black Sea and are assaulting the walls of Constantinople. <laughs> and and their annals are what refer to these people as the Rus. Ah. It, it's not even clear, and it's not clear why they call them that. So one of the arguments is that since the Vikings at this point were generally the military leaders, that the Byzantines were talking about the guys in control, you know, the ones you generally talk to. Right. But it, it, but it's, it's led to a constant debate about them. But, you know, if you're talking about the things that you don't know, Rus is then subsequently the origin, is the term from which Russia or Russia comes from, and... No one can tell you exactly what the origin of that was or who it was referring to. So See, there's a lot of, of things that we. One don't of the know. reasons I wanted to ask this is because most people, when they think of history and they read books, you know, they think that it's all just you guys found it somewhere. It's like it's like it, no. it, 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 it it's real. I want people to understand how incredibly fragmentary and hard your job is, particularly 1,200 years ago. Well, then try going back, you know, 12,000 years exactly. ago or 5,000. The further back you go, the, the, the iffier all information becomes and the less there is of it. And it really becomes increasingly vague. But so, no, there is no giant. This is, you know, one of the things I'd often point out to students was that, you know, people tend to think that history is easy because it's all in a book. Now, the Encyclopedia Britannica <laughs> has everything you would need to know about it. Yep. And it's not. Um what you've got, what, what history is constructed of, history is just a story, or it's a series of stories, and you've, you've got a few facts. So one of the things that we, in this case, that we can be as sure of as you can be as sure of anything, is that Rurik was a real person, and he lived sometime between about eight and 900, and he was Norse or a Viking who came into this area from the outside, and that he was an important military and economic force in, in uniting things. And, and, and with a hell of an ability to organize. Uh, you know, maybe he got lucky. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's never underestimate that you're just in the right place at the right time. So so what happened in this case is that this Rurik got the ball rolling and he was and he and his descendants for the next couple of centuries up into this period were were able to more or less unify the I'll tell you what, let's hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence, but I'm gonna be doing in the breaks is playing music, hopefully equitably, from Russia and from Ukraine. And let's see if you recognize this one. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence, Russian historian, among many other things and talents. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. You're on the other side of midnight, and we shall return. from the beginning, um, if you look back through English history, the common law and equity both developed under different systems. Right. The common law was originally always the, the original system of law which was biblically based. And it was handed down orally from person to person over the years because there wasn't any, any printing press or writing until the Middle Ages, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas equity, however, what would happen is the common law at that time was extremely strict. Yes. Very, very harsh. <laughs> and 
most people fail to to realize the uh, the strictness for and I know for example um, one criminal charge sometimes can take four or five pages to lay it out of everyone and if you missed a, a, a dotting an I you the, the guy could have the charge thrown out so what developed was eventually people who thought that the common law was too harsh would petition the king for redress and then the queen king I should say or queen would determine if they were going to have mercy on him and what they were going to do. Um, sometimes they were thrown to the wind and said, too bad, you're out of luck. Other times they would get redress. And what would happen as more and more people started going to the king, he couldn't handle the workload. So he appointed it to the chancellor. And that he started doing it, which then became the court of chancery or equity. And of course, a number of principles developed in equity. I think there's 12 or 13 of them now um, that developed over the years where it basically was a, uh, a separate form of, of law based on fairness and various principles that developed parallel to the common law. And then early in the 1900s, they were fused into one court because you had different courts, common law and you had equity. And they fused them into one court where the same court would apply both systems of law. And if there was a conflict, and only if there was a conflict, the common law would prevail. Hi, I'm David Kevin Lindsay from Canada, and I would urge everybody be able to support the other side of the news with the news media all over the world essentially promoting the government narrative on virtually every issue out there everybody needs an alternative source of accurate truthful information and the other side of the news provides that information that source of information from a variety of speakers all over the world with personal knowledge and experience that they can share with everybody in over 160 countries that they're involved and that they go to to show everybody in the world what they are doing to support and encourage everybody else to also stand up for freedom issues throughout the world i would urge everybody on a regular basis to listen and support the other side of the news Welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, January 30th, 2022. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence, Professor of History Emeritus at the University of Idaho. I still think it's like, you know, once an historian, always an historian, even if you're not attached to that institution anymore. Anyway, um, Rick, um, let's pick up where we left off in the country of Rus. Did anybody ever bother to go back to Sweden and find out what what Rus means in Swedish? Uh, it's the closest that I know anybody is was the name of a of a county or an area. But there seems to be some disagreement as to exactly where that was. But nobody thought, so, you know, what the heck is the underlying meaning cuz all names ultimately trace down to other things like more fundamental substantive things. Well, it was named after something or somebody. <laughs> wow. But, but uh, you know, where that comes from is... Now, th there's there's a counter-argument to that the Rus is an area in Sweden, and there are other people who argue that, no, it actually does refer to some area in what would later be, you know, in, in this eastern Slavic area, or reserves, it refers to some people there, but uh, nobody has ever definitively identified who that was. Okay, as long as we're on the subject of digressions, <clears throat> yeah. where did the term Rodina come from? Rodina? Yeah. In the hunt oh, for Red October. Mother, motherland, Rodina. Ah, okay. Ah, okay. Uh, that's related to, the root word there is, is, is Rod. Um, which is which can refer to family. It, it's similar to our word for root. Ah, I see. Okay. 
So okay, that would end refer of, to... End of digression. <clears throat> Please yeah, continue. Okay. Right. Well, anyway, so Rurik got this whole thing, you know, Rurik the Viking got the whole thing going. And, and what eventually this Kievan Rus, the, the, the term we historians use for this, or some of us do, is that we don't call it a country, we don't call it a kingdom, we call it a polity. Oh. Which means that there was, you know, it, it on and off, there's one strong man in control, but it's I think it's it's much like the rest of medieval Europe. You know, you essentially had the uh, you know the, the biggest drug dealer, the toughest guy around, the one who had the largest army, uh, and who could intimidate or buy off everybody else. That's what you did. You either militarily intimidated them uh, or killed them, or you you bought them off. And what Rurik and his descendants did, those who were successful is that they were able to, to make it profitable for the other lesser warlords in this area to cooperate. And therefore, one of the things that Kievan Rus, this polity, this, we'll call it this kind of semi-demi-pseudo-state, was that it was based on trade, internal trade and external trade. So when the Rus whoever exactly they were, decided that they couldn't conquer Constantinople and the Byzantines. They began trading with them. And what they began to control was this trade route that goods flowed all the way across Eurasia, all the way from China to Constantinople. Constantinople was a huge, it was a city, probably at least of half a million inhabitants at that time. Well, it was an incredible crossroads. Right. And, and so goods came in from the east and the the Rus connected with this, and they then carried this trade up the rivers, up the Dnieper and other rivers, into the Baltic, and dispersed it across northern Europe. So that's one of the things that people often misunderstand about the Vikings. Um, you know, the Vikings, by the way, aren't an ethnic group. It's a job description. Ah. <laughs> a, a, Vic, a Viking, a Vi Vikings weren't an ethnicity. It, it basically, you were essentially a pirate. So think of it that way. Okay. Uh, a Viking was any sort of Norse man who joined with others and went off adventuring abroad. And that could mean loot and pillage, but it could also mean trade. Or it so could be an exploration general... like Eric the Red in the colonies in the, in, in the New World, North America, yeah. and all that. But, all of the, but those colonies are economic enterprises. Exactly. That's, that's where you're going there. And you're always trying to set up trade. Or you're trying to set up something that you can make money off of. So all of this is based upon trade, and that's what eventually made Kiev, down in the south, the most important city. Mm. And the thing you'll note again, if you look at this map, there's a, this red line, which looks like it's a border, and I want to emphasize there were no such thing as real borders in those days. But Kiev sort of sat towards the southern part of this area along the biggest river, the main trade route, a river called the Dnieper River. D-N-E-P-R is the way it's generally spelled. Dnieper, if you want to sound, if you want to anglicize it. And what's geographically important about that is that Kiev sat sort of on the border, on the edge of the forested area and the open plains to the south. So as you went south towards the Black Sea, forest gave way to open steppe. So by the time you get down to the coast of the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov, uh, those are the areas that for centuries were known as the Wild Plains. Now, these are areas that later... Well, basically, the they're kind of like the American Prairie. Very much like the American Prairie. They were, they were a large sea of grass. And, and, one of the, and that's why they grew wheat so well later on. Say, this would be the, the Black Earth region. An incredible breadbasket, yes. Okay. But, keep, but they're not an incredible breadbasket really until the 1700s because they're never systematically cultivated because they are the wild plains and they were the general highway and haunt of a variety of nomadic peoples. So you've got the names of some of them. There were people like the Pechenegs, the Kumans, the Sarmatians, the Sumerians, you know, later on the Mongols and the Tatars will show up. But there's always, once, once you got out into the wild plains, these were areas that were basically controlled by nomadic herding peoples. And, and one of the things that nomadic peoples do is that they don't farm 
land, they farm animals, and they need land for food. And there's, you know, when they come across a, a large grassy area, they have no interest in growing crops on it. They want that for their herds. So the thing about you know nomads is they can be kind of pesky, and they can raid, and they can be a little ornery when you try to send trading ships down along the rivers. And so there was always along this sort of border area, there was a kind of constant warfare that took place. And a warfare between the more settled, the sort of, you know, eventually the Rus, as we'll call them, settled into cities and towns, and were basically agriculturalists. But on the steppes, you had nomads who wanted no real part in that and were generally inclined to raid into the settled areas. So this is how you begin to get the term for this area south of Kiev, sort of along to the north of this steppe highway of the Wild Plains, that became the borderlands. And that's where we get the term Ukraina. Ah. So Ukraine is an anglicization of Ukraina, which is roughly the closest term that we would come up for it, is the borderlands. Now, that also gets us to this question as to whether it's Ukraine or the Ukraine. <laughs> yes. And this basically has to do with the different, simply the differences between English and Slavic languages uh, like Ukrainian or Russian. And in Slavic languages, certainly in East Slavic languages, there's no definite article. You don't have any articles. There's no the or a. Those simply aren't used. They don't exist. They don't know what they are. They make absolutely no sense to them. Hmm. Okay, they're seen as utterly unnecessary. Now, we, on the other hand, in, in English, any area which is named after a kind of geographical feature or, or any, any sort of area or country, in many ways, that takes its name from the geography is, has the put in front of it. So, like, the Netherlands or the Philippines. So, mm -hmm. you know, you can talk about the Philippine Islands. Uh, but generally we'll do that because we're, we're talking somehow it's defined by the judge. So the same thing is that the borderlands, that, that's what makes sense in English. So there Well, we also say it right here, the United States. The United States. So the borderlands is simply the way that we would translate Ukraina. That, that's that's the, the rough idea. Ah. It's the same sort of idea, but... In Ukrainian or Russian, there's no definite article, so there's no, so it's simply borderlands. And I guess the question then comes up: How do they tell what borderlands they're talking about? Actually, it's pretty easy. It's right there in front of you, generally. <laughs> so, um, well, but between Kiev and the, and the Black Sea. Yeah, but, but keep in mind this: the, the line between Kiev sort of set on the edge to the north of Kiev land is, is fairly forested, and to the south, it, it becomes more and more open. So Kiev was important, is that that's where all the goods, all the furs and honey and slaves, by the way, that was a big trade item at this time, that were brought and collected down, were all gathered together, and they were organized into big convoys, big river convoys, that then had military escorts that would fight their way down through the river, you know, maybe they'd make pacts with some of the nomadic tribes on and off. You know, the situation was always changing diplomatically. But that's how this whole area came in. So the important thing here is that the subsequent term Ukraine, or the Ukraine, if you want to anglicize it, doesn't refer to a people. It's like Rus. It, there's, there's no people. There's no tribe. There's no ethnicity. It simply refers to a basic geographical fact of a borderland between those two groups. Hmm. A buffer zone. A buffer zone. A kind of movable, hostile frontier, I guess is one of the okay. ways that you could, uh, you could think of it. So that's what we're eventually talking about. And, and the definition of exactly where that border was changes over the centuries. Well, in, in, uh, hang on. In modern parlance, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm, I'm flashing on that, you know, New Yorker cover that I used to see yeah. when I go to restaurants. You know, there was this place called New York, and then there was this sliver, and then there was this place called Los Angeles. 
and in between is flyover country, right? Mm-hmm. Ukraine was flyover country. It was it was wasteland. It was out there. Well, it was simply an area that 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 really wasn't. It was it was dominated, and and up until and up until really the time of the American Revolution, up really until the 1780s. It will not be until then that the last nomads are essentially tamed in that area, and that area is then settled and brought under systematic cultivation. So this 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 frontier, this concept of a kind of borderline between settled, between agricultural and settled civilization and nomadic tribes, that, that, will, that will persist for centuries. But that's all the term actually means, and it never actually clearly, it doesn't define a country or it doesn't define a people. It's just a name to an area that later sort of stuck. Hmm. Now, the other thing that happened in this Kievan period that's important is that in 988, Here's an exact year for it, and we know the year it happened because lots of people wrote it down. Uh, and one of these descendants of Rurik, or one of the other strongmen, a fellow by the name of Vladimir the Saint. Now, guess what he's going to be called the Saint? <laughs> Vladimir the Saint converted Rus from paganism to Christianity. Ah. But he converted it to Orthodox, Eastern, Byzantine Christianity, not to Roman Catholic Christianity. Well, for obvious reasons, I would imagine. Well, you know, they did, you know, they did a lot more business with the Byzantines. That, that's where the cultural influence came from. Mm-hmm. So the Byzantines began, and that's, that's the Christianity, that's where the missionaries came from, that came into the area. But Vladimir the Saint, in 988, nominally, and it's going to, you know, there were still a lot of pagan holdouts for a couple of centuries or so, but he's the fellow who then essentially created a, and this was another unifying factor, because what that did is that it then created a single religious authority throughout this area, which the head of this polity or state was also nominally the head of. So you had a church now to sort of enforce loyalty and obedience. But that was the religion that spread all over this area, that spread from Novgorod all the way down to Kiev, all the way over to the borders of Poland, all the way out to the edges of wherever these borderlands and the and the nomadic frontier was. So if we look at things in the year 1000, the the sort of Rus or lands uh, of the Eastern Slavs that this portrays, is that, remember, at this point, there is no Russia, there is no Ukraine. There is a single quasi-political and economic state under a single religion. Now, That doesn't mean that everybody spoke a language in one form or under the same land. I mean, there must have been innumerable different dialects between one place or another. But this is where all everything comes from. And And the point is that in the beginning, there was no distinction between the two. And in fact, one of the things that both modern Ukrainians and modern Russians both recognize is that this Kievan Rus state or polity is the origin of everything else that we come out of that area, that they share a common origin. Okay. So how did things change from there? How did we get to the further development of these things? Well, if we go down to map two, you've got a map... And this shows pretty much the same area in a larger scale. It doesn't take us all the way down to the Black Sea. You can still see Kiev, and most of the things on this are kind of pink or yellowish blobs. But what this shows you is that around 1600, now we've jumped up 600 years. Oh my, what yeah. this shows isn't the Ukraine, and it doesn't show Russia. What it shows is the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. So what had happened for some time, is that in the later part of the Middle Ages, the Kingdom of Poland, now the Poles were also Slavs, but they're rather different. First of all, they became Roman Catholics as opposed to Eastern Orthodox. So that created a a cultural divide between the two. And, you know, just to point it out for people, to, to the uninitiated the Eastern Orthodox Christian Church and the Western Roman Catholic Church did not love each other and get along. Each claimed to be the only legitimate 
church, and therefore they bitterly quarreled and even warred with each other uh, and vied for territories to control. Didn't they actually kind of only uh, bury the hatchet figuratively in the last, like, ten years or so? I'm not even sure. No, they never buried the hatchet. <laughs> I mean, they 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 they've never to the extent of one recognizing the other is is. Being I remember a, a, a photo, video, whatever, of, you know, the Pope and the uh, head of the the Orthodox Church meeting somewhere. Uh, he has a certain title. I I can't remember. The uh, the patriarch. 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 But, that, yeah. that, but there are. The problem is that there are a number of Orthodox patriarchs. Ah. Okay. okay. At one point, there was, there was only one in Constantinople, but then eventually, the one of the differences is that the Roman Catholic Church always held itself apart from politics as long as it could. So there was the church, and then there were kings, princes, dukes, states, etc. Mm-hmm. But the pope was always separate from them. The church was always something that was not part. You know, the, the church might be support the state, it might support this king or another one, but it wasn't part of it. And, and in particular, uh, popes were never subject to temporal rulers. The idea was is that the pope, as the vicar of Christ on earth and the representative of God, was above all temporal rulers. So he, for instance, this is why he thought he could excommunicate a king or a prince. And the same was partly true for the patriarch in Constantinople. But the difference there was that under the traditions in the Eastern Orthodox Christianity, the patriarch was subservient to the emperor. Oh. Okay. This, it, you know, this, this takes us off in a whole different direction. But think of it this way. The Western Roman Empire collapsed, and there wasn't an emperor. So the papacy came into being and established its power without a Roman emperor able to tell it what to do. In the East, however, the Eastern Roman Empire doesn't fall until 1453. So it outlasts the Western Empire by a thousand years. Mm. And as long as there was an emperor, the emperor was not only head of the state, he also was control of the church. There's a term for this called Caesaropapism. Wow. Now, that's the tradition that Russia and the East and the whole Orthodox East would inherit. That, that later becomes a very important, one of the things that, that the whole principle of czarist autocracy is built. This is, this is why the Russian czar hmm. was, was not only the head of the state, but he was also the head of the church. And the patriarchs or the metropolitans, the, 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 the princes of the church, obeyed him. They, they recognized him as their overlord, whereas popes in the West, if they had any kind of power at all, never recognized any king or emperor as their overlord. And so, so they were supposed to be subject to them. So again, there's this very which, different sort of Which leads to very them. interesting perceptions of the world. Yeah. As to how the world ought to be run. Yeah, yeah. And where proper authority exists. Which, which so I'm, Eastern, what I'm trying to do is to begin yeah. to kind of shadow you know, foreshadow the idea of Putin really believes a lot of the stuff he's saying. Well, maybe he does, but but, but it's a... Um, so you, you've got this this culture which develops in this area, and, and it's, it's, a, it's an orth, a Christian Orthodox culture, which is common to all of these areas. But one of the things that happens in to Kievan Rus is that uh, a couple hundred years after that last map we saw, the whole thing just goes to hell. And what happens is that it, it breaks down, once again, uh, strong leaders essentially disappear. It breaks apart into small, warring principalities. And these small principalities, busy fighting among themselves, then essentially end up dominated by larger powers around them. So the biggest one to come along are the Mongols. So the Mongols show up around 1240 and pretty much just burn everything. They burn Kiev to the ground, and they actually, most of the principalities that have been part of Kiev and Rus become subject principalities to the Mongol Khan. So, for instance, this, this would be true for the princes of Moscow, which has grown up as a major city in this period. And this meant that 
even to hold your title as prince for about 400 years in many of these, of these uh, what we'll call it for lack of a better term, Russian domains, is that you had to make a pilgrimage to the nomadic capital of the Khan of the Golden Horde and swear your loyalty to him and to pay tribute. So one of the things that happened is that what would become, become Russia, what would become the principality of Moscow, which would become the center of the later Russian state, would spend about 300 years under very strong Mongol influence. And it would still re remain Slavic and Orthodox Christian. But it was, it, it's one of the, think of it this way, it was one of the few areas of what we tend to think of as Europe that for centuries was ruled by an Asiatic empire. Mm. On the other hand, what happened to the Another Western reason era, for differences in perception. Yeah. What happened to the Western areas, most of those areas that would become sort of, not all of Ukraine, but, the, the, but much of what is the Ukraine today, those areas fell into the domination of the Roman Catholic Poles and Lithuanians. So initially, Poland and Lithuania were two different states, and then, put it this way, a couple of people got married, and then they were one state. So there was a <laughs> dynastic union between them. Okay. But Poland-Lithuania, I mean, if you look at the, at the Maxim side, it was huge. I mean, it, it covered a, a gigantic oh, yeah. area. Look at that map. And it controlled, Kiev became part of it. So much of what would later become... Belarusia and also, but especially Ukraine, which is what we're talking about, would come under centuries of Polish-Lithuanian domination. Now, again, the Poles and the Lithuanians are not Ukrainians or Russians. The Lithuanians aren't even Slavs. They're Roman Catholics, so again, they had a kind of a different culture, but they dominated and ruled these areas for centuries. And one of the things that changed is that while most of the common people in these areas remained Orthodox Christians, much of the nobility became Catholic because, you know, you wanted to get along with the king in Warsaw, uh, and therefore you would come. So there was, a, there was a kind of different religion and ethnicity that permeated the upper classes than, than the lower classes. And again, to give you a rough comparison, it's it's similar, not exactly, but it's similar if you're talking about medieval England where you had Saxons and Normans. The Norman French were the lords, they were the elites, they spoke a different language, uh, had a different culture, and the common people were the Saxons. And eventually those two things sort of fuse into the English, but it takes a few hundred years for that to happen. So really, okay, where, Rick, what would be... Rick, we are at yeah. the top of the hour. Right. It's amazing how time flies when you're lost in history. What a, what an interesting enlightenment. I mean, I've learned a million things in the last uh, hour. Just just that. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence. We're taking a deep dive into Russian and Ukrainian history. And as I promised, it's complicated. But at the end, hopefully, there will be enlightenment. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Tchaikovsky in the background. We shall return. for listening to this exciting first hour now the second and third hour of the show is available to club 19.5 members only please support the show by subscribing to club 19.5 and join our very interesting community to do that please visit the website theothersideofmidnight.com and click on the join club 19.5 link in the left hand column as a club 19.5 member you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. 
As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.